Amen, Lord. That song echoed our prayers this morning, that we pray that you would speak your words to us, uh, words that have stood the test of time, words that remain true, promises that are sure, steadfast, that we can hold on to for our time and for this place as your church here until you call us home. God, we pray that as your word is expounded, that you would speak to each and every one of us, that you would cause us to hear the truths which you wish us to understand and grasp, that we might be the church which you call us to be, that you would reveal to us your great plans for us and for your, for your, for your name. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher now, guide us into your truths. Lord, help, continue, help us to continue become the church that you wish us to be, that we would fulfill your purposes and your, your work and your labor that you've called us in Christ Jesus to fulfill. Help us to be faithful, to walk in them, and to grow in love for you as a result of our time together, and that we would be better equipped to make disciples of Jesus Christ to your glory. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, good morning to all of you. Welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. And uh, please, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Matthew this day. And I'm going to read Matthew 16, 13 to 20, just give us the full context. But our focus actually will be on Matthew 16, 18. Today, Matthew 16, 18. And uh, Matthew 16, 13 to 20. And... Uh, <clears throat> I think I've preached this passage over, over, uh, over several occasions, not only from this pulpit, but from, uh, in Sunday school classes throughout the years. It remains one of the most uh, uh, powerful passages and influential passages for, for me, and I trust for you too, in, when it comes to the nature of the church, the nature of the church. Uh, and so uh, as we are covering our, um, basically our, our mission, vision, values ser- series in this beginning of the year, I'd like wanted us to relook and take another look again at the church and understand um, some the truths that God wants us to understand. Well, uh, as I've gotten older, and many of you have gotten older, uh, when we study the Bible, when I read the Bible, those passages, there are passages that speak about life and death. They, they stand out more to me. They kind of resonate more with my soul. They, they're very relevant to me in my stage of life. And, you know, kind of when, once you hit that little hump and you start feeling your body, notice, you noticeably, you notice your body starts to decay, you kind of know that there's, the number of our days really are numbered, even though we knew that in our head, but we know it in our bodies, you know, in our minds at this point. And that's why I feel. And, and those, these verses, these past that just that we read about, and I love uh, Pastor Ray's series through Ecclesiastes, that was, the whole book is about those kind, of, those kind of passages that speak about life and death. But one particular passage that speaks to my soul is Psalm 90. Many of you know Psalm 90, written by Moses. It's, it's often read at funerals, to tell you the truth, but it's, a, it's nevertheless a very relevant passage and resonates in my heart. Verse 10 says, uh, Moses writes, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. 
we may live 70, 80 years on earth, some more, some less. And in all those years, we live and go about pursuing our various endeavors of our, in the days that we have. We complete school. We develop a career. We raise a family. We purchase various things, a car, a home, experiences. And all these things, the scripture calls here in this particular Moses, in the ninth chapter of, of Psalm, calls these things, call, they call it pride. These are things we would find pride in. They may give us pride in accomplishing them. They're not necessarily bad things. They're part of natural things of life, of the course of life. But Moses writes in verse 10 that all these things that give us pride are but labor and sorrow. They're work that leads us to sorrow. Why? Because we die. And that's the simple matter of it. It's a matter of very clear cut. It's the reality that all things that you look forward to, you want to accomplish, that give you that you think will give you joy. You get to complete that collection of you know of those uh, things that you are collecting. All of us have those collections. And they say, Oh, I have that. But if you think about the scriptures, you think about life and death, you think about, well, those things are really but labor and sorrow. Because soon we die and those things are gone and we fly away. It's a sobering thought. A sobering thought that all that we endeavor to accomplish in this life do not last. Even though we spend so much of our days trying to accomplish and pursue these endeavors of life. It's not that we ought not to pursue those things. Some of those are necessary. Your work, for instance, a career, developing a job. But of all the accomplishments that we may pursue in this life, endeavors, there is one endeavor in this life that lasts beyond this life and lasts into eternity. And that endeavor is the work that we do in the church of Jesus Christ. Our theme this morning, our focus is on the church. We've been talking about the mission, vision, values of a church. We have framed it in terms of this series that we've called God's Great Plan. What is God's vision, God's revelation, God's will for his church as well as for Christians? Well, we've seen in first two sermons that we, of our series that number one, God's great plan calls us to love God above all else, to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is the overarching command that, 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 uh, that is uh, that from the, of its overflow it leads us to do all the other things, which includes loving our neighbor. But secondly, we learn that God's great plan calls us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ empowers us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. Not just so that we might be able to sing or not just so that we may do our work, not that we just go about living life. He gives us his Spirit so that we may be his witnesses, that we may tell others about Jesus, that we may help others to grow in their Christ-likeness from salvation to sanctification. Today we're going to learn that our passage from our pastors, that God's great plan calls us to belong and be involved in his church, in his church. 
I don't know again where I'm preaching the choir this morning, but we're gonna. You're here at church. You're, you're many of you are members of this church, but I hope that it will increase in you and a love for Christ's church, a greater understanding and, and of why, and a reminder of why we do what we do as a part of this church. And but if you're new here, you're kind of relatively new here. You're not a part of this church yet. I, I hope that it will give you inspiration, motivation to become involved in in this church or or another church of Christ. At, of elsewhere, but that you'll be involved in Christ's church. Uh, as we will discover, the church is the only endeavor in life that will last into eternity. It is the only thing in this world that Christ promises to build. And he does so in our 16th chapter of Matthew, verse 18, which will be the, uh, it'll be the primary text of our sermon, but I want to just give, read for us now Matthew 16, 13 to 20 to give us the full context. I don't normally do this, so it's a little different, but it'll uh, still be encouraging to you. Let's read Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 18, as you'll notice, as we've read, is the first place in all of the scriptures where we find the mention of the word church. And of course, significantly, it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Before we look at the verse 18, we'll notice the context, just give you a context of the surrounding verses. Jesus and his 12 disciples are in the district of Caesarea Philippi. It's on the out, kind of the edge of the northern part of Israel. And there Jesus posed to his disciples the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? When he says Son of Man, he's referring to himself. It was the most common designation that he would use of himself, uh, taken out of Daniel. It's a, it's a reference to the, it's a messianic title that he often would take to himself. And, and, and so he asked this question, who do people say that I am, essentially? Though despite his miraculous works that he had performed by this time, despite his authoritative teaching that he had taught throughout uh, Galilee, there was no consensus as to who Jesus was. Though all Israel was looked for a Messiah, they looked for the Christ, the anointed one, no one was thinking that he was the Messiah. So they gave various answers, which the, the apostles answered for him. And Jesus heard their answers, and he asked, then he, he asked the question again, but he asked it directly to the disciples. Verse 15, he says, but who do you say that I am? He 
The question really doesn't, is, a true, is a great question that all of us should answer in our lives. It doesn't matter who other people say Jesus is. What matters for you and your eternity is who you say that Jesus is. It's what do you believe about Jesus? And so he asks this question, makes it personal to Peter and the others. These men who had followed him from the beginning of his ministry, these men who had been eyewitnesses of the miracles that he had performed, these men who had been ear witnesses, if you will, of the teaching of the scriptures that he had taught all throughout uh, Galilee, what do they say? They've been following him. What is their answer? Verse 16, Simon Peter answers and answers. And, it's, and you know, I don't know if, if uh, presumably, uh, hopefully, that if he had asked the, the other guys, they would have given a similar answer. But Peter, being the, often the spokesman of the group, the leader of the, among these apostles, answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word Christ is the Hebrew word that which we transliterate to Messiah, right? Of course, what it actually means, Messiah in Hebrew, is that it means anointed one. The anointed one is a title in the Old Testament that is primarily reserved for the king. Jesus, according to Peter, is the messianic king. In fact, that's the whole theme of the book of Matthew, by the way. It's this focuses on Jesus as the messianic king, written to a Jewish audience to convince them, to tell them that Jesus, this Jesus whom you, saw, you heard about and lived and died and rose, he's the messianic king. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. Peter not only recognized that Jesus was the Christ, but he also believed that he was truly God. He calls him the son of the living God. The word son, uh, when it says son of someone, son of this, son of man, son of, son of the living God, it indicates that that one who is the son of, of the father shares the, the same authority, the same privileges, the same nature as the father. So to say call someone as the son of God, or the son of the living God, is to say, Peter, and Peter is otherwise saying that Jesus is truly God. He was sent by God, and he was divine in his nature. And when Jesus, and this, was a, and this is the true confession of who Jesus was, and it is the true confession of every believer in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus heard Peter's confession, he responded to verse 17 with a, a, a pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus uses a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a, a oh, I forget the word term, but he, the, the similar terms. He says, Simon Barjona. It's a Simon, that means Barjona means son of Jonah. He emphasizes who his father, his father was named Jonah. Simon, who the son of Jonah, blessed are you because but your father, your own father, Jonah, didn't teach this to you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. We revealed, who revealed this to you, this truth about who Jesus, who I am, is none other than your heavenly, or my father, but our heavenly father. Peter had, Jesus is saying that Peter had come to understand this truth, not of his own determination, 
A lot of times when we think we come to know who Jesus is, we think we figure it out on our own. I know many of you have testimonies where you started to figure out, try to search for who Jesus is, and you, you studied the Bibles, and you did some comparative religions, and you, studied, you looked at all the different books out there, the scholarly works, and then you figured out who Jesus was. Well, that's oftentimes where we begin. Uh, I get that. But I hope as you grow in your Christian life, you'll eventually realize that there are many people who do the same study as you do. They'll read the same books, the same fan, fan, uh, scholarly works, They're, and they will not come to the same conclusion. And they don't come to the same conclusion because they're not as smart as you. It wasn't because you were so smart that you figured out who Jesus was. It's because God opened your eyes. It's because the Father in heaven opened your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus is saying. Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. You're not that smart. God the Father, he revealed this to you. God is the one who gives understanding of who Jesus is. And he's the one who gave us all understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus' question to the disciples and Peter's divinely revealed answer then is the setting for us here in verse 18. But even in those verses, we learn so many truths about our faith in Jesus and how we come to saving faith. And so with that kind of review, introduction, I want to get to verse 18. In verse 18, we're going to look at four characteristics of the church that God calls us to be a part. God calls us to be a part of his church. We're, we're to be members of his body, members of his church. And uh, in this verse, we see four characteristics of this church that God calls you and me to be a part of, to be a member of, to belong to. Let's take a look then at these four characteristics and grow to come to love the church, the body of Christ, that Christ uh, has purchased with his blood. <clears throat> First of all, we learn from this verse, 16, verse 18 from Jesus that, number one, the church is built upon Christ. The church is built upon Christ. Jesus, uh, we, we read again, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And we're going to focus on that, that whole phrase, but for this particular point, we want to focus on the phrase when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock, that little phrase there. Now, this again is a play on words. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a two similar sounding words that Jesus uses. We know that he says, first of all, to Peter, he says, you are Peter. And Peter's name is, in Greek, is Petros. It refers to a stone, a, a, a stone, a pebble. But when Jesus then says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's not saying upon, uh, he uses a second word, which sounds very similar. Not Petros, but Petra. You can see why they're very similar sounding words. But Petra does not mean a stone or a pebble. It means a large rock. It means a crag, a cliff, you know, a big, giant, immovable rock that will not move. It's steady and sure and steadfast. You can hide it and shelter in it and be secure in it because it is a rock that will withstand all sorts of uh, buffs from the outside, of the outside world. 
And so Christ promises he's, that he will build his church upon this rock, this large rock. Now, so scholars and theologians and uh, Christians all throughout the ages have debated the interpretation of this rock. Many of you should be familiar with the, with the, the issue, I hope. But there basically are two main views, basically. Okay? There are multiple, you can say there's multiple views. I like to just categorize them in two general views, with each with variations. The first view is that this rock refers to Peter. Peter. This, of course, is the view of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, and it's the basis of the belief in the papacy, the, that Peter, there's been a long line of succession from Peter, who was the first pope, to the, uh, the popes that he would choose, and all the way down to the pope who is sitting in Rome today. And that pope then has authority, unique authority, to speak on behalf of God and to determine things on, for the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we are not a Roman Catholic church, and we do not believe in that view. And I, and I can just basically give you the main reason for why. Because if Jesus wanted to use, uh, to indicate that it was Peter, he would not have used a different word. Though they're similar sounding words, he intentionally uses two different words, even though they sound the same, at least to us, and, you know, well, to us, perhaps. But he is using, he, by using two different words, he's making a distinction. He's not, it's, it's just like if you use the word stone and then you use big, a, a, a rock, a, a cliff. They're, you know, they're two different things. And Jesus is saying that he's referring to something. He's trying to, he's trying to indicate that these are two different things. So anyways, the second view and the view that which we hold and many Christians, most Christians hold. And by the way, there are some evangelicals that hold to view number one, but not, they don't believe in the, in the papacy and all that, but... It's a, there are some. But view number two generally holds that this rock refers to Christ. This rock refers to Jesus Christ. And why? Well, he's right, this is Matthew. By the way, this is the only place where this promise is recorded in the Gospels. Nowhere else. Only Matthew writes it. He writes it down because he's writing to a Jewish audience. He wants them to know who this Jesus is. It's not that Jesus didn't say it, and Mark and Luke just left it, and Mark and Luke, you know, they... Uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't choose to write it down because it wasn't really uh, something that was particularly relevant for their audience at that point. And so Math, Matthew's writing this to a Jewish audience. So, so a Jewish audience that reads this, that hears this, and Jesus calls himself this rock, this large stone, this cliff, you're going to think that he is referring to deity. For in the Old Testament, just go search your Old Testament, the figurative use of rock is never symbolic of any man. No man ever calls him, I'm, I'm the rock. You know, it's like Rock Hudson or something like that. Whoever he is. View number, rather, what we find is that all throughout the scriptures, we see phrases like, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The Lord is my rock and my redeemer. The Lord is the rock and shelter of my life. He's a rock in which we stand. All throughout the Old Testament, we find passages that refer to the Lord as the rock. And this Old Testament concept carries into the New Testament as well. 
We find places in 1 Corinthians, like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, where Jesus Christ is spoken of as the rock. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, we see uh, that Peter used the imagery of Jesus as a living stone. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through Jesus Christ. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Jesus is that stone upon which the, the, we who come to him, we become living stones, we become part, built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the, the cornerstone. We become built up into this church, this, this temple of God. It is therefore then upon Christ, this cornerstone, the rock upon which the church is built that Jesus promises to build. Or some of us, and my particular variation is that it is specifically the confession of Christ upon which Christ builds his church. There can be no church without Christ or without a correct understanding and belief in Jesus Christ. There are many church buildings all around our city, but they are dead. Why? Because they have lost a true understanding and belief in Jesus Christ. They believe in good works. They believe in feeding the poor. They believe in doing and just loving all our neighbors. But they have lost Christ. And because they don't preach about sin, about our Savior, and our need for Jesus Christ, they are dead churches. Though outwardly they may go about doing whatever they do. And some of them good things. But we know what Jesus and what God would say about our many of our our good works, filthy rags, apart from Christ. There can be no church without Christ. Jesus says that he will build his church through those upon those who this confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And everyone, so everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is then not only receives eternal life, not only receives forgiveness of sins, but we are added to his church. We become these living stones, as Peter talks about, who are brought in and built upon the chief cornerstone. There's no way, other way for us to enter into the church except through Christ. It's why Jesus answers this question specifically to his disciples, who do you say that I am? He wants them to acknowledge, who do you believe that I am? And so, very practical application, since Christ promises to build the church upon himself, upon the confession of who he is, we then, as the church of Jesus Christ, what should we do about that? Well, hopefully we begin by making sure that we believe in Jesus Christ, right? That you could, do you confess that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the Christ, the King? And if he's your King, that means you, you, we owe him our allegiance, our obedience, our service, that he's the Son of the living God, that he's divine, therefore that he... And if we believe that, he's commissioned us, we should follow whatever he calls us to do. And what he calls us to do, as we learned last week, is to be his witnesses, to make disciples. And therefore, if we're going to be his church, we want to be the church that God is building, Christ is building, we must teach, speak, and proclaim the truths about Christ. 
for the church, the church of Jesus Christ, and, which is a universal church, but it's manifest, it's visible in terms of all the local churches all around our world, as a Bible being one local church, one representation of the universal church. The church of Jesus Christ, the church is the only place in the world that God has ordained for the proclamation of the truths of Jesus Christ. When the world wants to know who Jesus is, they need to go to church. They should just go into a church and they should be able to hear about Jesus. For why? We are a group of people bound together by our common confession of Christ. We are charged with a task to proclaim Christ to the world. For Christ will build his church as we continue to proclaim the Christ. It is only upon a right recognition and confession of Jesus is one ever going to be added to the body, is one ever going to enter into the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom, as we looked at last week, without, or two weeks ago, without knowing the king. Where there is no message of Christ, there is no church of Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we never forget that. May you tell it to your children and make sure your children tell it to your chil- their children and so that they will tell it on to their children. May we never become like many of the churches all across our city that are beautiful buildings but empty buildings because somewhere along the way we forgot about this confession of Christ. Pass it on. Write it in your wills. Son, daughter, I'm giving you all my stuff, but I'm giving you the most precious treasure I have, and that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I want you to take this treasure and pass it on to others, to your children and your neighbors and your friends, and your schoolmates, your classmates. For these things that I'm giving you are, will perish, but the church never will. Give them, give them this true proclamation of the gospel. He calls us to build the church, or to be part of this church, because the church is built upon Christ. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic of the church we find, as we continue on in this verse, is that the church not only is built upon Christ, but the church is built by Christ. The church is built by Christ himself. He says in verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church. I will build it, says Jesus. And this is the promise from Jesus himself. Not only is he the chief cornerstone, the, the stone upon which the 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 temple of the living God, the church is built. But this, he tells us that he is the one who is the master builder. And what this says, when he says, I will build, it tells of certainty. It's a promise of Jesus. All we just sung about, all the promises of, of, Jesus, of God that are sure and secure. These are those promises that we know that we can hold on to. No matter what may happen in our world, no matter how evil things get, no matter how few Christians there are, Christ promises to build his church. He began on the day of Pentecost by sending the Holy Spirit. He used the apostles to proclaim his gospel to Jews and Gentiles 
who then responded and received Christ and were added to the church. And then those people told others. And they told others and they told others and all and so on and so forth until someone told you. And here we are. A church, a local church that belongs to the universal church of Jesus Christ. Not the work of any single man or woman. It's the work of Christ who built this church throughout all of history, ordaining all our ancestors, different people who came to know Christ, or not even our ancestors, but our neighbors or our teachers or whoever it was that shared with us Jesus. Christ sovereignly builds his church. He continues to build it, and he will continue to build it long when we're gone. He will save people. He will sanctify people. And one day he will complete the building of his church. When he comes for the church at the rapture, the church will be complete, and he will bring us to be with him. It's an it's a encouraging truth that although Christ commands us, the church, to make disciples of Jesus, that involves telling others about Jesus, leading people to Jesus Christ, helping them to try to, to keep and obey all that Christ commands them. This is our task. This has been given our charge. We are there, therefore, to speak and teach these things. It, the responsibility is upon us. But the, the problem is that Everyone's dead and there's trespasses and sins. They're not going to hear what we have to, see, to teach them or say to them except that God is at work. Because Christ, through, in Christ his son, God is at work in saving and sanctifying believers. As the gospel is shared, he opens eyes, opens ears, opens hearts and minds to understand and grasp the truths that God has for us. First Corinthians 3, 6, the pastor reminds of God's sovereignty in, in the work. For though Paul speaks of how he planted and Apollos watered, they're all part of this, this garden, this field that they were working, it was God who causes the growth. God causes the growth. And a passage that is... Uh, it's just a vivid illustration is in John 15. John 15, verse 1 to 8 there, Jesus used the imagery of, of the vine and branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember that? He talks about this relationship that believers have with Jesus. You've you got to be connected to him. You need to abide and be, remain connected with Jesus. And this relationship comes through those professing faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says significantly in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him he bears much fruit. And I love the part that comes next. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. It's, very, it's, very strong, it's a strong statement. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing in this world. It's like you take a, vi- a piece of branch and you cut it off the vine. You just throw it on the ground. What's going to happen? It's not going to grow into another vine. It's going to shrivel up and die. It can do nothing. It's only as that, that branch remains connected to the vine does it is able to do anything, produce fruit, bear fruit, bear, grow leaves, and stand further. 
for the saving of men and women in court is something that depends for all of us, even as we're called to do the work of making disciples, it all calls for us to depend upon Christ and to abide with Christ and to remain with Christ and Him alone. And so this should encourage us in our discipleship and in our discipleship and our evangelism uh, that we can trust Christ to build the church, to grow the church, to make disciples. A lot of times we uh, we go out and maybe when you evangelize, and particularly churches, you we're, we're so tempted to evaluate our evangelism by by numbers of how many conversions there are, how many people came to Christ. Um, we even think about, oh, maybe we can evaluate like even how the health of a church by how many new members we get. You know, so it's so easy just to evaluate these things by, by numbers as if somehow it was what we were we had accomplished those things. But the, when we evaluate numbers in the church, and it's I get it, you know, it's it's a it may be a, a helpful just kind of thing to to look at the church in some way, but it's it's to trust in those things alone, it's it's a little misleading. It's it's a it can be false. Because we're not the ones who produce those numbers. We're not the ones who build the church. It's Christ. We, all we are to be doing is to be faithful to tell others, to be faithful to strive to make disciples about Jesus, of Jesus and let God do the work. There are many faithful churches out there who proclaim the gospel and they are still very small churches. We, they're probably dotting all across America and all across our world and not large churches, medium-sized churches like this one even. And they may, but if they, as they are faithful to tell others of Jesus around where they live, that, that it pleases God. For Christ is the one who saves. We don't have to look at those numbers. We need to simply depend upon Christ. So let's be prayerful. Let's be prayerful. If, if Christ, the church, is built, up, is built by Christ, let's continue to ask Christ and pray for God's will to be done Christ, will you, will you build your church as Christ promised? You pray that. That's, that's a, something we can hold on. It's a good promise. Will you build us a Bible as you promised to build your church? It's a great prayer. Please pray for our church, uh, this church, as we, as we continue to labor for his kingdom. Thirdly, a third characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ we find in, uh, in, the, is, in our next point is that the church belongs to Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church, my church. I like that. And uh, that personal pronoun, as we've been uh, running, it uh, seems like it keeps coming up. These pronouns, really, they really do matter. The church is Christ's. It belongs to him. It implies that it belongs to him. He is the owner of the church. Why would he say that? How can he say that I will build my church? It's still future, so the church is not, you know, it's still a future point at this at the time of writing here, or at the time of speaking. But it, is, it, it belongs to Christ. Why? Because he's the owner. Because, first of all, he purchases it with his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves for all the flock among which, <coughs> excuse me, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. These are very fine words, especially for elders of a church, leaders of a church. Because it's so easy for leaders to think that this is our church, my church. This is Pastor Henry's church. I am the, I'm the first among equals, so therefore my way should go. Right, guys? Yeah, and it rarely goes that way. <laughs> uh, no, but, G- 
But Paul gives these words to the elders in Ephesus to remind them, this church doesn't belong to you. The church of Ephesus does not belong to you, brothers. It belongs to Christ because he purchases it with his blood. Not your blood, his blood. A healthy reminder. Not only is he the one who purchased the church with his blood, but he is now, therefore, the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, we read in our call to worship, he's the head of the body of the church. And then, not only is the hus- he's the head of the church, but he's also the husband of the church. Ephesians 5.25, there's a whole passage about husbands and wives. But husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like a husband, Jesus gave himself up for his bride. He gave his life over for her. It is Christ's church because he purchases with his own blood. Therefore, he's the head of the church and he's the husband of the church. It's interesting, and, that, and what's the relevance of this? That it's his church. We all understand it's Christ's church, yes. That's why we call ourselves Christians. It's the church of Jesus Christ, yes. I get, we get that. But we, don't, we oftentimes forget that when we start calling churches my church or your church or our church, there's a, there's a tendency to when, when we use those pronouns with regards to church, not to say that they're, they're evil intent or anything, but sometimes we start thinking that this is a really church that does belong to us. But it is interesting if you study the New Testament, you never find the church or local churches ever associated with an individual's name in a possessive pronoun sense. Possessive sense. It's never Paul's church or Apollos' church or Timothy's church. We, we do that all the time. Well, that's Pastor Henry's church. Well, that's Pastor John MacArthur's church. We, we use those terms all the time. But you don't find that in the New Testament. You never find the phrase, my church or your church, used. Paul never writes. He could have used it many times. Oh, dear Ephesians, when you gather at your, at your church, uh, I want you to know this blessing is for your church. Or, he doesn't say that. He's, the scriptures are so intentional. The only time personal pronouns used of the church is when right here, and Jesus says, my church. There are a couple instances, of course, and we don't be too, you know, I know when I say that, I hope you guys will be careful, okay? I uh, sometimes you take it and you just run and go crazy with it and say, oh, you said, oh, your church, or my church, oh, that's bad. You know, don't, don't think like that, but just trying to get understand why I'm trying to say to you. There are times where it talks about the group in terms of, of a group of, or the church in terms associated with a group of people, the church of Laodiceans, the church of the Gentiles. And so there are those, those kind of associations. But for the most part, the church is never identified with any individual, though. Instead, except for Jesus. The New Testament often used uh, phrases such as the church that is in her house. The church in your house. It's very intentional. And I believe this, this intentionality is to remind us that for the believers that the church is, does not belong to us, but it belongs to Christ. So I know we still, and it's not going to change how we use the terms, let's just my church, your church, and that's okay. But just remember what you mean by it. It's the church that I attend, the church that I'm a part of, the church that I belong to. It's the church that, where I gather. That, that's what we're talking about when we say my church, I church, your church. Okay. For not a, few, not a few churches throughout history have become places of contention and conflict because one or a few of the leaders of the church started thinking that the church belonged to them. 
You know, this is, this is my granddaddy's church, and this is my daddy's church, and this is my church. You can't come in here and tell me how what to do with my church. For our sweat and blood, we worked and we built this building, we built this gathering here. This is our church. This is going to, it's going to be my way or the highway. Um, I didn't mean to put that in a southern accent, but you know. Uh, Who has the final say in Christ's church? Who has the final say in Essa Bible? You're going to say Pastor Henry, huh? No. It's Christ, right? Not any elder. No single person. It should be Christ. How do we do that, though, practically? Well, it's through the word of Christ. Through ultimately, the, the elders are called to be gifted men who are able to teach so they will know what the scriptures teach. So in the discussion of various matters, we try to understand what does Christ want us to do? And we, we will discuss, we debate, we'll, we'll have differences of opinion, but we bring about, we bring, try to bring to bear upon particularly heavy situations all of what Christ's word has to say. And we know we're not perfect, we're not going to always make the right decision every time, but we strive to make a decision that is in in consistent with the words of Christ, so that Christ may be head of this church and not ourselves. And that should be true for all of us as we think about the church. It's Christ's word that matters, not mine, not yours, not anyone's. His alone. So as we go about the ministry of the church, let's be sure to learn, follow, and teach Christ's words, because this is his church. A church that doesn't know Christ's words, that doesn't, is not careful with understanding what the words of Christ say, is a church that's not going to be following Christ's way. This principle, of course, expands, expands even, extends beyond just not only to the church as a whole, but even to our own ministries. When we say, this is my ministry or your ministry, this is Christ's ministry. Whatever ministry you're a part of, it's Christ's ministry that you are serving in. And so, for instance, as I, am serve, I lead here, I serve in this church, this particular pulpit ministry, but this is Christ's pulpit ministry. And any day that he, is, he has deemed to bring along another pastor to fill this pulpit, whether it's one of our associates or anyone else, I, I need to be ready to just step aside and let Christ put his man here in this pulpit. For this is his pulpit ministry. And I'm okay with whomever he wishes to use to lead this pulpit. It's his. It's his church. The church is, belongs to Christ. Fourthly and lastly, we learn this fourth characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ that we are all called to be a part of is that the church is preserved by Christ. Preserved by Christ. Jesus concludes in verse 18 with the phrase, uh, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Will not overpower it. Hades is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol. You kind of read, if you have your Old Testament, you kind of sometimes will see that word Sheol uh, translated. And the word term Sheol was basically the place of the dead, where the dead go. And gates, um, the gates of anything is usually the entrance to anything. So the gates of Sheol how does one get enter into the to the place of the dead? Well, through death. You got to die to enter the place to the to the place of uh, Sheol, to the place where dead people are. So the gates of Hades is a reference to death. We actually see this in, in Isaiah thirty eight ten, 
where uh, Isaiah writes, I said, in the middle of my life, I'm to enter the gates of Sheol. I'm to be deprived of the rest of my years. So he knows he's about to enter death. He's about to die. That's why he used the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades, uh, in other words. But so Christ is, says here that the gates of Hades will not overpower this church that he will build. That is, that not even the gates of Hades, that is, the, that is death itself will not be able to overpower the church. There are people who want to kill and destroy the church. All throughout history, today even, you know, kind of, I know Americans were kind of, we only know about what's going on generally in, what, in our neck of the woods. But if we uh, follow, look on the news, go find a good Christian website, go maybe Voice of the Martyrs or uh, some persecution church, you will find there's a long list of countries where Christians are being sought out to be killed. There are still people who want to destroy the church. But Christ's promise is that though people have been trying to destroy the church, people have been trying to kill Christians, that even death itself, the gates of Hades, will never overpower it. They cannot destroy the church. Why? Because Christ has promised to build it. And what Christ builds, no one can destroy until Christ is ready to call the church home. The word for overpower means to, to have mastery over something, to be a master over, to say that you could do, I'm going to have control over you. I'm going to tell you to do this, you could do that. It's, it's like a master and a slave. And it, Jesus says that death will not be able to be master over the church. How do, will he, how do we know this to be true? Or how is this to be? We learn in Romans 6, 9, because we're associated with Christ, because we belong to Christ. Now, if we have, Paul writes in Romans 6, 8 through 9, now, if we have died with Christ, that means if we identify with Christ's death, that is, his death on the cross, we believe that we shall also live with him. That means we're also going to, though we have died with him, we're going to also be resurrected from the dead. How? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. See, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he showed to the world and to us that death no longer can be a master over him. Death cannot overpower Jesus. Therefore, as those who identify with his death and his resurrection, we as the church can have the confidence of knowing that death will not master us. Praise God. We will all die. I look around this room. I'm overwhelmed with emotion because I know that I'm going to see a good number of you die before I die. And that brings me sorrow in a sense because I know that Death is that final, the final trial. It's the valley of the shadow of death that all of us must walk through. It will not necessarily come easily to some of us. And though we die, yet I, I rejoice because I know that death will not 
be a master over you. And though you die, and though we all die, we will know that we will enter into his presence through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ not only defeated death at the cross, but he did so for all who would ever believe in him. His resurrection is the visible picture of his victory over death. His resurrection gives the believers the hope that we too shall conquer death because of Christ. See, the sting of death, what causes our death is sin. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took that sting, our sin, and he bore it on the cross. So that that sin does not have its sting on us anymore. And though we physically die because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we will not truly die. For we will live on, we will never die. We'll live on forever in God's presence. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greater joy is that as we make disciples of Jesus Christ, each soul that we may point to Christ, each soul that we may lead to Jesus Christ, each soul that we, create, that we help grow in Christ is one soul, one more soul delivered from the power of death. One more soul delivered from death's sting, the sting of death. Each one, whether they are our children, our parents, our spouse, our co-workers, our classmates, and yes, even our enemies, is someone who, if we lead to Jesus Christ, will be someone who is there waiting for us or will meet us there when we enter the kingdom of God. Our work in the church of Jesus Christ is not labor and sorrow, though we die. For the work, there is the fruits of our labors go on, go into eternity. They extend. They are an endeavor worth laboring in, brothers and sisters. For those fruits will never perish. Well, Christ has promised to build his church. As we see in this verse today, the church is built upon Christ, first of all. Which is why we tell others about Jesus Christ, about how they too can come to know him as their Savior and Lord. And how he is the, the king and the Son of God who died and rose again on our behalf. Secondly, the church is built by Christ, which is why we as a church depend upon Christ as we go out and make disciples, as we tell others about Jesus. We will build nothing unless Christ is building it. So let's depend and let's pray to him and ask him to build the church. Thirdly, the church belongs to Christ, which is why we follow his instructions to build it. That it's his words that we must follow. And fourthly, the church is preserved by Christ. Therefore, the investment of our times and labor is worth whatever we spend. Whether you're a young Christian 
with many years ahead of you in life. Talks about death and life are, are kind of just intellectual. They're in your head. It has not gripped you that you're going to die yet. I want to tell you that the church is a worthy endeavor for your life. All the things that you pursue, that you have passions for, that are on your bucket list, those are fine. But make the top of your list, the top of your energies, the work of laboring in Christ's church, in Christ's field, in Christ's building. For it is an endeavor that will last beyond our lives, your children's lives, your grandchildren's lives. If you're an older Christian with many years behind you, though your strength is waiting, you feel like you can't do as much as you did before, do not lose hope, do not give up, do not step aside and let others do the work, do what you can, for Christ has empowered you with his spirit. To serve in his church. Your experience, your wisdom, your skills, your knowledge of God can be used of God as you labor in his church to produce the fruits that endure in this world long after you are gone. As we conclude, let me give you three questions for our discussion today or this week. Question number one, what, what makes you a part of Christ Church? Are you part of Christ Church? What makes you part? Is it because you joined a church? Is it because you attend a church? Hopefully it's, you understand that what makes you a part of Christ Church is what you confess about Christ. What is it that you confess about Christ? What do you believe about Christ? What do you recognize of Christ? What do you believe about Christ? Secondly, how are then you a part of Christ church? Not what makes you a part, but how are you involved in Christ church? How are you a member of Christ church? Let me ask a more, just a practical question. Is your, is your involvement in Christ church, is it more of a passive involvement or an active? Ask yourself that. Or do you just kind of basically sit and kind of just attend the various things and just kind of sit there? You never have to do anything. I just sit there and listen. Or is it active? You participate. You, you speak truth. You speak the word of God and the power of God to the people of God. You try to do that. How are you a part? And, you, and that's just encouraging you. No one, one way that everybody should be a part. Everybody has different gifts, different, different abilities, different skills, different desires. But there's a way that God wants you to be a part of a church. Just like every member of our body is a part of the body. Different functions, different different abilities. And lastly, if you do not belong to a church, well, I invite you to consider joining this church. Uh, we, our membership class is going right, on, going right now. It's going to happen right after church today uh, in room 206. You can join. I'm sure they will have you. It's a full class, uh, but I, I'm sure if it's, we need more room, we'll make room, okay? We'll find a way. And we invite you to, you can attend the class and kind of learn how to become a member of this church. And, uh, but if, if you're just visiting, perhaps, you're kind of just here for a little while, 
and then you're going to move on. Well, I hope that wherever you go, it leads you, that you'll be a part of, of Christ's church, wherever God has you. Praise God for, that Christ has promised to build his church. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for your word, these truths. Thank you for Jesus, who promised to build his church. Help us to <coughs> hold on to this promise and live in light of it. These things we pray in Jesus' name.